They're playing with my life. They're playing with my, you know, little brother's lives. They're playing with my little sister's life. And they're, you know, playing with the lives of our future children. And if we don't say something about it, if we don't do something about it, then we're telling them that it's okay for them to play with those lives. And it's really not. Welcome to Accent of Women. I'm Ayan Shirwa. On today's episode of Accent, we look at the media's demonization of African youth and the impact it's had on young people. We also speak to Amy McGuire, a Durambul South Sea journalist and researcher about what the African communities can learn from First Nation people. In 2007, Liap Goni, a South Sudanese boy, was bashed with metal poles by two white men looking to kill blacks. They did just that. Goni died from his injuries in hospital. The murder of Liep was made more tragic by the then-immigration minister Kevin Andrew calling to limit the intake of African migrants. Liep's murder and the subsequent media reporting continues to impact his loved ones. His cousin Naya Wichforch joined Axon to share her road to recovery. Um, well, Liep was my cousin, but I considered him someone who was like a brother to me, you know, because... Um, we had the relationship as like a brother and sister kind of relationship. Like he always taught me to like do good in school. And, you know, he never wanted to disrespect his um, mother or my mom whenever he came um, around the house. Um, um, basically, I was the age of 10 when I lost him. And that was devastating because I feel like I just lost like my mentor my best friend, my brother, it was like all in one. And um, I I was scared at first when I lost him because I wasn't really sure what I was going to do, mm. how I was going to cope with it. And it wasn't until later on I saw how it like affected the people around me. Mm. I saw it affect my brothers. I saw it affect my auntie. I saw it affect my mom, close relatives, you know, it had, like, a profounding impact. I felt like everybody was close to live and everybody was going through the same hurt that I was. But the only difference was that I was the one who decided that I was going to speak up. I was going to do something about it. I wasn't going to stuck in this. I was going to be stuck in the loop of, like, racial trauma. We end today's yeah. show. It's been 10 years um, almost, a young I think, South a bit over 10 years and a politically um, engaged since young Liop was uh, tragically taken away from the family. Um, mm. We've previously talked about the transformation that you've made from when he, you know, was taken to now. Can you tell us what the process was and perhaps tell us what helped you? Yeah. It was tough because during that time, my brother, I have two older brothers who were really close to Leah because Leah basically lived at our house and they weren't coping well with his death. Um, they weren't coping well to the point where they got diagnosed, both of them, apparently with schizophrenia. Mm. So that, that, like, from those young age of me growing up, I saw a lot of division within my family. I was exposed to a lot of family um, violence. They never physically hit me, but the fact that um, my mother and both of my brothers were fighting was really tough, mm. I think. And 
that led me to kind of just want to study criminology and psychology. So now I'm a deacon and um, thinking about getting out of my childhood self, you know, removing those horrible childhood memories and starting a new chapter for my life. And, you know, maybe putting racism to, well, not to an end, but maybe spreading awareness that it affects people differently and that it has long-term effects too, especially on your mental health. You were at the protest, the protest against the way Channel 7 has been reporting news on African youth. Um, why did you feel it was important to be there and to also share your story? Because although we're fighting back, we're fighting against racism, we also wanted to inspire to the news youth. We wanted to inspire them to keep them going because a lot of these days in today's Australian society, there's a lot of Sudanese children trying to do good and every day they have to work hard just to prove their worth. We want to let them know that they are not alone, that there are people like myself who are working every day to make not only Australia a great place, but to make South Sudan a great place too. You know, We want to take advantage of the resources which are provided to us and we want to be able to do something good for both countries. We want to be able to know, we want people to know that we represent both Australia and South Sudan. You know? And for culture to not be seen, for, for both cultures to kind of integrate and become one um, without stereotypes, prejudice, abuse, or racism. You know? And what do you hope to see for the future? in terms of the relationship that the media has with the African community? Mm. Yeah, um, I want to let everybody who's listening, or Australian viewers, to know that when we held the protest, we weren't taking away from the victims of crime. We were simply saying that we need Australian um, residents and citizens to stop uh, labelling uh, Sudanese youth and putting them in one thing, one label, because this is what's bringing us a lot of trauma. It's bringing us a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. I especially hate when I go on the comments on Channel 7 or anything that's got to do with African gangs, and I see that there's so many racist people uh, posting racist comments and racist people liking it. You know, it makes me feel a little discouraged that a lot of people feel this way and that they cannot empathize the lives that they are impacting or the lives and opportunities that they are taking away for Sudanese youth. Because like myself, there's a lot more Sudanese youth who have graduated high school, you know, who are finishing their bachelor's degrees and really trying to make a difference. And it's sad that dreams are being crushed. For myself personally, I want to be able to support Sudanese youth. I want to be able to support Sudanese overall, Sudanese parents, Sudanese community. I want to be able to make an impact, a positive one. And what I need is support from both of uh, both parties, you know, whether it's Sudanese or Australians. I want to be able to be supported to make that change and to not be viewed anywhere or my intentions to be seen as any different than what I want to achieve. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia.
We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Accent of Women. On today's show, we've been looking at the way stories about African youth are manufactured by mainstream media and the detrimental effects these stories have had on the youth. A renowned criminologist, Stanley Cohan, describes the process in which people become labelled deviant in his foundational text, Folk Devils and Moral Panic. Cohan looked at the way the media takes a problem, in this case small incidents of crimes committed by African youth, and exaggerates the problem to create a moral panic. A moral panic is produced when an incident is amplified and distorted and the key players become folk devils, in other words, villains. Australia has always villainised black communities, especially Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. To help us understand the media's relationship with First Nation communities, we spoke to Amy McGuire, a Durrumbul South Sea journalist and researcher. Amy. How does mass media reproduce racial bias? Yeah, I think um, media plays a key role in um, not only entrenching racism, but also reproducing it. Um, I think we've seen, particularly, you know, in the context of the way the media reports Aboriginal people, that um, it often has material effects. And I think of instances, obviously, like the NT intervention, which is based on the slandering of Aboriginal men as pedophiles and also um, the stripping away of agency from Aboriginal women, how that actually had an impact over 10 years for not just Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory, but um, all around through the entrenching of neoliberal policies and um, the furthering of policies that really stripped us of humanity. So um, media plays a key role in that, and I think also working through silences. So, you know, because um, the media is largely dominated by um, people from dominant groups, they're obviously going to reflect their own interests and obviously um, silence the voices of marginalised communities. So I think there are so many ways in which the media actually reproduces racism, mm-hmm. and it has direct human impacts on the lives of the most oppressed people in our communities. Yeah, and hopefully we can talk about that um, later on in the show. But I'm sure there are also rules that govern what news can and can't report, yet they continue to produce Um, content that's racially insensitive and biased. How are they getting away with this? Um, I think, I mean, I think there's a problem with accountability in the media and I think that really goes back to the fact that, you know, the people who control the media are obviously members of um, the dominant group. You know, we're in a situation now where we have a lot more um, diversity in voices, but at the same time, those who control the narrative are largely you know, white Australians, and they'll often, you know, choose the issues that um, better reflect their own experiences and opinions, and often that is totally in um, opposition to the interests of um, Aboriginal people, other people of colour, you know. So I think um, they get away with it largely because we are largely still voiceless. 
and there's just no accommodation for accountability or the consequences that their reporting may have on um, community, really. Mm. Um, there isn't really... Um, yeah, there isn't really any accountability, I don't think. And I think there's also no willingness to actually rectify that. Um, yeah, so I think that's a key part of the problem. Hmm. And you mentioned earlier that it has that it does have an impact on the communities who are at the, I guess, the um, uh, at the tail end of the reporting. Um, can you uh, elaborate on that? The type of impact that it has. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, we see particularly in, I mean, if I'm looking specifically at Aboriginal affairs, which is where I really report on, um, you know, I, I gave the um, example of the NT intervention, but there's also, if you remember, the forced closure of Aboriginal communities, which is mm-hmm. really based on, you know, not just um, recent media reporting, but, you know, reporting that goes back to the early days of invasion, which painted... Aboriginal people are savages and deviant and the reason that they do that is really to justify um, the theft of land and so you know that was really tied to that and it was only through the activism of Aboriginal people all across the country that that was um, really halted although I think that agenda is still going but I also think of you know the young Elijah Doherty over in Kalgoorlie Mm. and um, just the continual dehumanisation of Aboriginal children you know seen as not being of worth that does lead to the, the consequences we see in community where a non-Indigenous man is given a life, a light sentence for killing an Aboriginal boy. And so we see the way, the ways that human worth um, is categorised. And that's based on a long history of really racist reporting, you know. And I think a lot of white journals will say, well, we're not racist. But, you know, you read the subtext and you read the discourses and the representations and this has a long a long, sad history um, in this country that's directly contributed to um, our oppression and, and the fact that our lives are seen as disposable. Yeah, and for community, for the newer communities, um, communities of colour, like the African community, yeah. um, I'm sure you've, you've been following the way the media has handled or the way they've created this narrative about African gangs. Yeah. Um, and even though we know it's not factual, just like the way Indigenous people are portrayed by the media is not factual, what can yeah. we in the African community learn about, uh, I guess, resistance measures that Aboriginal and Torres Strait people have put in place? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think there's um, a lot to be learned. You know, I saw, I see some arguments around um, the fact that, you know, these, um, this slandering and these moral panics against certain um, groups and community come and go. So I saw a recent comment commentary about, you know, it was once Asian gangs, it was once Lebanese gangs, but I think that can be really simplistic because I think we're talking about anti-blackness and that has infiltrated, mm-hmm. um, you know, that was has been a p- key part of colonialism all around the world for centuries. And so not to um, deal with the role anti-blackness has um, and the threat the threat blackness poses to white supremacy I think is really simplistic and I think that's something that um, African groups in Australia and also Aboriginal people have in common because Aboriginal people were racialized not just as black but also as Indigenous um, and so I think that's a key thing to remember um, for commentators who look at this issue you know the anti-blackness that's at play but also you know, I think there's um, a real role to be played in, in building solidarity between groups that um, 
I often find, you know, that it's the onus is always on Aboriginal people to build that solidarity. Mm. And I think there just has to be, um, yeah, greater gra- groundwork at the grassroots level in order to build that because the racism that all POC experience in this country is tied back fundamentally to the racism that um, kicked us off our country, that dispossessed us of, of, our, of our lands, that led to the widespread massacres of our people and the theft of Aboriginal children and wages, um, placing us under protection acts. Um, and, you know, the fact that we're seeing an over-incarceration of Aboriginal people today and also child, uh, skyrocketing um, child removal rates, the fact that um, our country is still being stolen um, and taken from us and destroyed um, so I think, you know, understanding that the racism that all marginalised groups experience today stems from the racism on the frontier that continues against Aboriginal bodies, I think is a really important um, point to understand when you are dealing with resistance movements because um, what we've seen is that, you know, Aboriginal people have always been at the bottom, you know, and we've been mm. resisting this for decades and decades. So... Um, I know that, you know, there are so many alliances being built, but I think we need to, to continue that because, you know, as I was saying before, this is about any blackness, any black racism, any indigenous racism. So there are a lot of similarities, but a lot of differences. Um, and there's a lot to be learnt, I think, um, from both groups, particularly, um, looking at the Aboriginal experience. Mm. Yeah, so. This is the same old colonial story and project and to me it just is more clearer that decolonisation and resistance are the remedy to colonisation. We end today's show with Abuk Golak. Abuk is a young South Sudanese artist and a politically engaged young person. So you've probably been keeping up to date with what's happened, what's been happening in the media in terms of the way the media has been drumming up fears about supposed African gangs. Do you want to tell me about how this reporting has maybe impacted you and those you love? Yeah, definitely. Um, I just want to acknowledge first that the land that we stand on today is that of the Wurundjeri and the Burundi people, the Kulin nations, and that the criminalization of black bodies is something that the indigenous community has been having to go on for a much longer time, go through than like any other migrant group. So I feel like with just Australia having like its roots on anti-blackness and just, you know, always having that like, mindset growing up like I feel like it's something that has been going on for my whole life but Mm. within the last two three years it's really increased and it's not just two three years it was like this as well in 2005 there was like racist um media reportings of like Sudanese and refugees and it's just repeating itself but it's really giving people that I feel like are older white Australians that have like a mindset they already feel more Mm. superior to, like, other groups. It's giving them more, like, a justification now to go Mm. act out in ways that they otherwise wouldn't have Mm. if it wasn't for, like, um, media, like, reporting of, like, over-representation. 
of like the Sudanese community. And yeah, it's definitely negatively affected my life and the lives of many other people that look like me. Just as simple things as just like going into public transport. I don't want to stand around you. Like if you, you can't walk around in groups without people, you know, looking at you a certain way. We've been like told to leave certain restaurants or been asked to pay straight up, being followed around in shops, you know, always having the cops. Like when you see the police, you don't feel safe around them. You actually feel like, damn, like maybe they're going to do me for something they thought someone else did, like, you know, and that's really common within our community. Mm. And yeah, I feel like that's the most biggest effects that it's had on my life personally and the lives of many other people. But I feel like it's even worse for our parents um, because obviously they're here trying to make something for themselves and their kids and their community and they've done really well. But now a lot of people, like, a lot of parents just feel like they're the ones being blamed by this society and then they, they don't have that conversation open with their kids and they don't know how to address it like the kids do. Cause, so I feel like we definitely have it a lot easier than our parents because we can address it now. Like, we know their language. And um, as opposed to, like, our parents, I just feel like they feel like they just don't know how to go about this and it's really really shocking to them yeah absolutely i can imagine how helpless they'd feel because um you're you know when you leave your house they don't you know they weren't they're not there with you and they don't know like the i guess daily like daily microaggressions that you might go through and i might go through so i've heard people say oh you know um, the best way to handle this situation is to sort of, you know, ignore it and don't, you know, mm. read news outlets. Do you think that's the best idea? Definitely not, because it's not going to change anything. You can't be silent about what's negatively affecting you. It's not going to make it stop. Like, we must speak out. But we also must unite, and I feel like it's really uniting the youth now. Um, like, our community is slowly just starting to realise that we just need to stick to each other, and we also need to utilise the tools that we have available to, you know, represent ourselves in good ways. I don't think it's... Yeah, being silent is what mm. somebody that's comfortable with their struggle does like if you're not comfortable with something happening and there's a lot of South Sydney people that are not comfortable with what's happening with our community because it's not fair that our community can be so vilified for the sake of a political agenda or whatever it is like it's we're humans and we have feelings and we have lives and we have things here that we you know have made for ourselves that we have worked so hard for and it's not fair that you know just because a few people within our community do some things wrong that we mm. all get blamed for it absolutely and we need to speak out about that that's conversations that need to be had continuously um and yeah sorry was this other half of that question <laughs> <laughs> no i was saying how um maybe an ideal outcome from that protest or um going forwards yeah. how would you like this story to develop I want just the outcome of the protest. I feel like what needed to be done was done. We made our voices heard and 
we made our message heard. I feel like it was a great confrontation to a lot of the people that so easily just go on the internet and type really bad comments to like people in my community. I think in that instance, they don't really think out the fact that we're actually people and that we actually have lives. And they're probably parents too, or they probably have brothers and sisters. And it's like, us being there is just saying that this is our life too. And I feel like it was a great confrontation for them to really, you know, maybe think to themselves, how do we, like, how do you do this to someone? There was actually a few white people as we were walking down the train station after the rally that came up to us and just said how they felt sick, that they just believed the media's hype. And Mm. that was not the purpose that we were doing it for, but I feel like that's, a great message to put out to people that we're actually just humans too like we're not all gangs mm. um but hopefully this um rally and i know it already has just opening more conversations and more doorways to south sudanese people in australia having their voice here and making ourselves being heard that's what was really the main focus of the rally and that was a book Golag. We also heard from Flora Chall and Naya Witchforge. Accent of Woman is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to hear this show again, or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Woman page and follow the links to this week's show. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.